Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. And how much does the security clearance process and policy matter? We think it matters a lot at clearancejobs.com. And that's why we try to let folks know what goes on with the clearance process, what's up with Trusted Workforce 2.0, what's the latest in continuous vetting, because we think the more knowledge the workforce has, the better they're able to do their jobs, and potentially the more people we attract into this workforce. And that's why we are so delighted to partner with amazingly brilliant people like Charlie Sowell. He is the CEO of SEM Solutions LLC. He's served in a variety of roles across government and within the security space. So he really has a great knowledge of this. And he's one of those people that I love to be able to ask questions to and speak with anytime I get to see him out and about somewhere covering the security clearance process, just because he knows so much. And again, he's been invested in this process in so many different areas. So thank you so much, Charlie, for taking the time to chat with me today. Lindy, thank you for the opportunity and back at you. It's great to talk with someone like you who knows so much about the process. And thanks for the great work that you and Clearance Jobs are doing and keeping everybody informed on the happenings in this space. I love talking to you because you've worked in so many different roles within this space. So you've been in active duty, you've done government service, private sector, now a company owner. How has your perspective on personnel security changed within all of those different roles? Because I do find you're hitting different tension points. And I feel like at this point, now you have to be close to having all of them, Charlie, under your belt. What have you learned in some of those different roles and how would you describe kind of the state of personnel security today having been in this space for so long? Lindy, that's kind of funny just hearing it that way, but you're right. I I feel like I've done just about everything except serve as an adjudicator, perhaps in the Office of Hearings and Appeals kind of part of the process. But started off in the cleared space as a young sailor. And back then, uh, clearance was just a tool I needed to get my job done. And then I went into industry and, again, used a clearance not just for myself, but also for the teams that I managed. And then as I left industry and went into government, you know, as a government executive responsible for the entire federal, state, local, tribal, and industrial security clearance enterprise, it really took on a different meaning at that point. You know, the focus was, gosh, how do we keep the nation secure from threats of all different kind of background and countries and topics like terrorism and proliferation? When I left government and went back into industry, you know, the focus and perspective kind of became on how do I help my clients meet their mission and help the company grow, whichever company I was in. And and now as an owner, security clearance is just one of the multitude of tools and processes I have to have to keep my business going, my clients supported, and, you know, make sure my employees have meaningful engagements and are paid. So it really has changed over the years. So last year was all about Trusted Workforce 2.0. I know I think I've chatted with you about it a few times, different iterations or things that have been going on, or Trusted Workforce 1.25, depending on how, how we're defining it. I haven't heard as much about it so far this year. Granted, we're only, depending on how you define your quarters, you know, a quarter or half a year in. Is that because we're in a holding pattern as we kind of wait for this implementation? Do you think there's things going on behind the scenes that we're just not hearing about yet? Or what's what would you, how would you put the status of Trusted Workforce 2.0 today? You know, I think the biggest impact has been the change of administrations. And things typically slow down at the end of one that's outgoing, and it takes a while to get things going in the next one. And I remember back again transitioning from the 
Bush administration to the Obama administration, it took a long time to get things going. When you look at what's happening today, it took almost a year for the Biden administration to issue prioritization guidance on trusted workforce 2.0. And frankly, that's relatively fast compared to past administrations. You know, in terms of the, the current state, I think we're in an evolution versus revolution type of, of construct because at the end of the day, we're still evaluating trustworthiness of people uh, to hold a clearance and access classified information. How we're doing it seems to be much improved, but the end game is the same. You know, you talk about marching toward trusted workforce 2.0. I certainly think it's ongoing, but the National Background Investigation Services, uh, INBIS, is clearly the linchpin to Trusted Workforce 2.0 success. A lot is riding on DCSA's successful rollout of INBIS, and I'd love to see a whole-of-government, best-of-the-best support approach to helping Jeff Smith at DCSA and his INBIS team uh, as they do their best to accomplish what's nearly an impossible task. Yeah, I mean, the technology piece of it, we've been talking about that for a long time about, you know, DCSA really inherited this giant elephant with their legacy systems from OPM. And I think that that's been harder to update. Government doesn't share its good news very well, but they definitely don't share their bad news very well either. So knowing what's the state of that process or as we wait for it to be implemented, it seems like that's going to be a key piece as we move forward is getting that INBIS system up and running. Definitely. You know, I'll applaud the leadership at DCSA and the, the PAC PMO with Matt Eanes and others across government for their increasing transparency. Um, I do think the key to INBIS is engagement, which is very different than briefing different stakeholders on the status of things. Engagement with industry, for example, means getting out there and understanding what Inbus's capabilities need to look like from an industry perspective, just like it needs to, you know, DCSA needs to understand how things look from a government customer perspective. It is difficult to see where things stand, and I think the real measure of progress is what can an individual FSO or what can a a security professional put their hands on and actually use in the system. And I think as we start to see more capabilities roll out, people's confidence will increase. And I loved how you described it earlier, evolution versus revolution, because I think that describes it well. And I think we get pushed back a lot about government not moving fast enough or too far. Even, for instance, ODNI's, you know, policy guidance on drug use. I think that was really important clarity, but you got a lot of pushback from, you know, kind of the drug industry side of it. I would say it was saying like, hey, that, does, you know, that doesn't go far enough. We've already seen that borne out. And I was just looking at some of the Doha cases out of DOD, and they were citing the fact that somebody had used drugs, knew it was illegal at the federal level but was doing it in a state where it was illegal, even though they were willing to give up that drug use, just said like, that's a that's a clear example of them knowingly violating a rule and use that as their argument for denying clearance eligibility. That person can reapply within a year. And I think if they have not done any drugs, their chances would be pretty solid. But it's not a sea change in terms of the policy. Could you even speak to that? Why we wouldn't see a sea change in policy? Why we're kind of seeing more incremental movements, even on things like drug use? Yeah, Lindy, that's a great example. You know, marijuana use in particular, as marijuana becomes more legalized across the country, there's this split reaction from the government. It's still illegal federally. So federal agencies that are issuing clearances certainly have to follow federal law. The more that 
you get candidates and applicants that have used marijuana legally in their state that might never have thought of applying for a federal government position. You got to wonder why we keep dragging our feet on on more meaningful change. And that's something that, you know, we all joke about. All of us that have spent time in policy making joke about the speed of policy. Well, it's a snail's pace of policy change, just like you've seen, you followed and reported on drug use changes in federal policy. You're never going to make everybody happy. So I still say, like, I still commend ODNI for at least releasing the guidance. Because we do see it is a whole person concept. And so I think depending on the person and the totality of circumstances, I always tell folks they're certainly within the IC. I think they are still keeping to a pretty hard and fast rule of one year of absence from drug use. But same thing being, unless it's a hard and fast rule and you see it published somewhere, don't quote unquote, weed yourself out of the process just because you have something in your background that's negative. I think I'm going to put that on my car as a bumper sticker. That's great. The other problem with this is agencies are still going to make different suitability and security determinations based on their interpretation of the policy and the law. And so it's really hard to put policy guidance out that isn't super clear and expect the entire federal government to follow it the same way. Oh, you've touched on one of our frequently asked questions is suitability versus security clearance. Can you unpack that a little bit? Just because I do think we have folks that listen in who don't always understand that difference. And we get a ton of questions about that. Why is suitability and security clearance different? And how are they different? Security clearances are typically related to a person's trustworthiness for access to classified information. But there are other jobs in the federal government that don't require a clearance that require a lot of trust. So, for example, somebody handling regulatory responsibility for prescription drug issues, you know, as they do investigations or as they do inspections of different drug companies, you could see where if somebody had a drug problem, that might create a conflict of interest and could reduce the public's trust in someone to be able to perform those duties and responsibilities to the best of their ability. Also, working with large sums of money. So if you're responsible for issuing contracts, that doesn't necessarily require a clearance, but it sure does require a level of trust in that person's integrity and capability, that they're not doing favors for friends or embezzling, cutting side deals. So that's, I think, the layman's description of difference between suitability and security. Yeah, that's always helpful just to hear and reiterate because we do get that question a lot. So I recently posted some data about the PAC PMO, which showed a huge drop in the clearance in access population. So that's another nuance. We have the total number of people with clearances, which again, the transparency has gotten wildly improved over the past even you know five years, few years through the PAC PMO and what they release. There's those folks who are in access using their clearance eligibility today and those who have been cleared, their clearance would be maybe current, but you know, they're not out of the system. They're not expired, but they're not in access today. So we saw this drop in the folks who were in access, who are using their security clearances today, which is a nightmare for me, someone who's trying to help, you know, employers find people. You kind of commented on that. A lot of folks commented and said it's a part of the great resignation. They think people are fleeing the cleared industry. I think that has to be borne out over time. But what are your thoughts? Do you think we're experiencing an exodus within national security? And do you think there's any steps maybe that can be taken to help turn the tide the other way? Yeah, first off, that was a great, insightful post and, and article. And thanks for putting that out there. I saw Brian Dunbar's comments about the great resignation, and that really resonated with me. I think there's a lot of fact to that, that people post-pandemic are using this kind of newfound freedom to work from anywhere to vote with their feet and their moving vans. 
Why sit in expensive, congested population areas when you can now dial in from your beach chair and still perform the same type of work? And frankly, the amount of classified work that needed to be done during the pandemic was the same amount of classified work that needed to be done pre-pandemic, but it was being done in very different ways. You know, you had port and starboard type of employee setups in SCIFs because of social distancing. You had people that previously would do a lot of unclassified work in SCIFs, now not just able to, but having to perform that kind of work from home because you couldn't get everybody clustered together in the same space. So I think part of what we're seeing is our cleared workforce saying, you know, a lot of the work I was doing, even when I was in access, wasn't really classified work, and I'd rather do it from someplace else, someplace cheaper, someplace with a better quality of life, someplace near family, et cetera. I also think, you know, unfortunately, the national security workforce is seeing polarization and fractured to some degree, just like the rest of our nation. Some people are wondering whether or not they want to work in a government environment when there are, you know, people, family members, friends that might come back and and say, why are you working for this administration or why are you working for that administration? That's always existed, but I think it's just a heightened sense of polarization today. Um, And I think that drives candidates away. But one thing that gives me a lot of hope is organizations like yours and other uh, associations like ENSA, Whenever we're holding mentoring events or opportunities for young applicants to ask questions, we still see a tremendous response and a tremendous interest. I do think the interest in public service uh, is still there and still strong, which certainly gives me hope. Yeah, I mean, it often comes as like making the right matches across these agencies and finding the right way to get people pivoted into government. And then, you know, certainly improving the government onboarding process would help. But I always still come across young people who are interested in these careers. So sometimes it's a matter of making the right inroads. But it does make me concerned for the middle management piece of it, which I know, unfortunately, the way government contracts are built, there's always a ton of demand for that demographic. And again, those are the people that probably have the most remote work, commercial sector, other opportunities. So how do we attract those folks? Absolutely. And when you've got companies like SpaceX that are doing leading edge, unclassified work, uh, working toward getting people to Mars, for example, There's a a certain draw of the highly technical population that's getting inspired to work for the commercial sector. That's a great thing. I think that keeps America's technological edge going. It's incredibly important to us for our economy and for our role as a world leader. But we also need that group of young, inspired job candidates for public service. And I do think that you know, the military continues to see strong interest in, in applicants. Some folks who can't get into the military for health reasons or other reasons find a home in public service in the federal government. There hasn't really been a huge impact from what I've seen on the number of people that are willing to serve. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, it's a cumbersome process, but it, it should inspire less fear than it does. Because, I mean, you've already given that data over to social media people. I mean, just go ahead and give it to the government. It's fine. All self-reported right there in the SF-86, which you can read about. So yeah, jump on in. Join a national security career. So talk to me about SCNM solutions, Charlie, because you're always doing something cool or interesting. So I have to trust that this is a really cool initiative and company that you're doing here. What kind of work do you do? How do you help companies navigate the security space? What are you up to now? Sure. So I started the company 
uh, in August last year after coming back from a, a kind of a public service mission down on the southern border where I was the site director for a unaccompanied migrant children site. So it was a real out-of-career experience doing something I had never done before. And when I came back from that, I really was inspired to continue helping underserved populations. SCNM Solutions was founded to focus on giving opportunities to veterans. Um, I'm a, a veteran, a service-disabled veteran, and uh, I wanted to create other opportunities for my colleagues there. And I also wanted to create opportunities here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I started the office in a low-income area in Harrisburg, and I'm looking to hire folks that may not have had the opportunity to get to Washington, D.C. and get to uh, technical jobs or meaningful careers outside of the Beltway. So that's what I'm focused on now. And I'm also offering services in, in some of the areas that have been my sweet spots for uh, a, a few years, personnel vetting and personnel security, information technology, and then my, my newfound love of refugee support and resettlement issues. I think it shows how across a government career, you can really pivot to a lot of different things. And you've had a, a lot of really amazing pivots. And I hope that kind of inspires people who are looking to consider a government career. I think this is the new norm that we're seeing is that you can really serve the government in meaningful, influential ways and do it in a lot of unique ways. And all of them have a real tie to public service. So I know when it comes to attracting young people, I think that's a passion point, right? I mean, we want, we want to give back. We want to help underserved populations. And there are a lot of different ways to do that in and out of government. So thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks a lot for the opportunity, Lindy. And thanks for the great work that you and Clarence Jobs continue to do, not only on this topic, but also across the government spectrum. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.